folks, welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer, a podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling sometimes complex societal issues. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and I'm the founder of This Is 8CD and the CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for people within the design and change making space. We also have our new Doing Design Festival, the next one up is on June the 18th, with the theme of Doing Design Online, with some of the This Is Doing team talking about loads of really interesting content around that whole space. For more information, see DoingDesignFestival.com. Before we jump into this episode, I want to alert listeners that this episode may contain content that is triggering to some people. In it, we discuss sexual abuse and working with design alongside issues of trauma. But today in the show, we have Rachel Dykus, a phenomenal person, someone who I really enjoyed speaking with. And she's an advocate for trauma-led approaches in design. And first and foremost, Rachel identifies as a social worker and is based two hours south of Chicago in Urbana-Champaign in Illinois. We speak in depth about trauma as a societal problem that is owned by all. We go into the details around working in this space and the effects it can have on us change makers and how we as designers and change makers are very much exposed to this reality. How might we protect designers from likely vicarious traumas in this space? How can we prepare the next wave of change makers to be ready? We speak about what designers need to be aware of when approaching some of the most sensitive subjects known, such as child sexual abuse, domestic violence, etc. Can and should design be seen as the saviour? It's a big conversation. It's a wonderful conversation. It's pretty raw. We've both exposed ourselves and it's a fantastic one and I hope you enjoy it. Let's get straight into it. Rachel, how's it going? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. We've been chatting for the last hour or so about everything and nothing probably at the same time <laughs> but we found out you're you're based close close enough to Chicago to probably call yourself maybe a Chicagoan Is well that, I that might be that might be a stretch a bit of a stretch although I did live in Chicago for a few years though yeah, we've we've just you know discussed that we there might have been a crossover and I was living in Chicago for a summer we may have. I think it's entirely possible that we may have crossed paths. For anyone listening, when I was a student, I worked in Chicago as a a ticket person for a tour company called Grey Line Trolley Tours. And I used to stand on the street selling these tickets uh, to all these tourists and singing Frank Sinatra, you know, songs <laughs> on the back of these buses for tips. That was me, folks. And just look at me now. <laughs> Look, look, look at how far you have come. Jerry. I know. This, yeah. this is, this is quite remarkable. How far I've fallen. It's like, you know, <laughs> no. on the back of those trolleys going around Wacker Drive and all those wonderful places in Chicago. But, you know, Chicago, is, it is a great city, though. But what I've learned, I was living up near near Armitage, Armitage and Bissell. Okay. A couple of great pubs up there. And I was like, Chicago's so safe. It's so safe. And I remember saying it to someone years later and like, Chicago's a city at two halves. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think when you just mentioned the the north side and the south side, it, I immediately drew this connection to to baseball and the red line oh, and yeah. Comiskey Park. One in the summertime. I know. I still think of it as Comiskey too. I think it's had two or three other names since then. I don't even know what the current name is, but I still think of it as Comiskey. And but in the summertime, when 
when the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox play each other, the red line, oh, the, really? the, the, the marketing for the red line says the only thing these two teams have in common, because like you can take the red line from Wrigley Field to Comiskey, which I just I always got the biggest kick out of. But, <laughs> but you know, but but you're right. You know, I think any any city, whether it's a small one like where I am in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, or a much larger metropolitan city like Chicago, there's so much happening and and the the dynamics are can be really varied. But when you're living in the city, you don't yeah. necessarily feel that, you know? I mean, I, I lived there for a few years and I I don't remember feeling necessarily unsafe. I felt comfortable because of the, you know, most of your neighborhood, hmm. a lot of the neighborhoods in Chicago, you kind of have everything that you need. You have like the small corner grocery, you have the the neighborhood bar or pub, you have like a couple little like restaurants and places where you can go. And so you you feel this sense of home and belonging even within this very massive city where there's a lot that's happening. Yeah. I, so like so when we were talking, you know, the, like during the first hour, I was I was really thinking back to some of those elements, and it's a great thing to be able to experience when you actually live there and you can yeah. like fully you know, appreciate that. Let's talk about your work because you know the reason why we're here today is one of our, our mutual connections and friends, Kellyanne McCurcher, mm-hmm. mentioned you to me a number a number of times. But you're a social worker. Is, is it fair to say, is that how you, you, you know, identify as a social worker first and foremost? Because you also work as a designer. Yeah, I, you know, I I feel like I, I've more recently had a bit of, I'm having a, not an identity crisis that, you know, how ironic would that be to say, you know, I'm a social worker having an identity crisis. But I think, hmm. I think when you work in more than one discipline, which is what I've been doing for the past, you know, handful of years, it's it's like which which identity do you do you claim first? But mm. for me, you know, I I'm I I am a social worker and I'm and I'm a proud social worker, and I've and I've been coming at this work in design, and just social work as a as a whole from from multiple different angles and from different experiences. So I I often call myself a a social worker in design, but I also do identify as a designer and as a design researcher and and do design strategy but i think owning owning some of those titles can you know can sometimes trip us up you know like how does that how do we how do we actually uh demonstrate that in our work how do we put that in context depending on who we're talking to as well mm. you know yeah absolutely as a social worker w- w- describe what a social worker typically does mm. I, I know it probably varies between departments and, and countries as well but like typically what was well, what does a social worker do mm. what does a social worker do so social workers are trained helpers in the u.s at least and especially in the state of illinois where i am you know in order to even call yourself a social worker you have to have gone through a an undergraduate program in social work or a master's mm-hmm. program in social work. And then you have to go through a whole rigorous process of getting your licensure and then continue education. And social workers work in a number of different arenas and domains. Uh, they work in systems. They work within organizations, policy, advocacy. Uh, they might do community work. They might do one-on-one therapy with individuals, do uh, work with with groups, 
almost all social workers have received some type of fairly rigorous clinical training. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that because that's, that is quite the majority. And even though I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which, you know, that acronym might look like something different depending on where you are in the world. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, it's called like LMSW, so licensed master social worker. But for me, I've got my clinical licensure and, but I, I didn't really do the clinical track. I, I studied macro social work. So I went in with this, with this thinking and, and just desire to better understand systems and policy and advocacy and leadership. And what, what does that mean to do through a social work lens, but in a variety of different contexts? And I, I mentioned that on a personal level because I think that helps to, you know, explain some of that variety that you can, you don't necessarily have to be a clinical social worker to do work with organizations and people and systems. You can be more of a systems thinker and try to, you know, navigate and problem solve and advocate for a variety of things with a non-clinical background. But part of that fairly small crew of social workers who did the macro track, but then went on to do a lot of clinical work. Okay. So when you say the macro track, mm. what does that mean? So macro, you know, in, in, in the context of social work, there's a, I feel like, I feel like sometimes social workers are, are their own worst enemy. Like we're constantly trying to delineate, you know, one type mm. of social work to another. I mean, it's very similar in design, you know, it's like, are you yeah. a graphic designer? Are you a human centered designer? Are you, or are you a service designer, a social impact mm. design? In many ways, it's like, you're just a designer or you're just a social worker. But in, in the context and the educational training and preparation that you get as a social worker, you you are often really encouraged to to pick some type of a, a track or a specialization and and really like hone in on that because it's mo it's gonna guide you towards the practicum or the field experience that you're going to do as part of the educational training. And or really like just set you up for what is going to be your maybe like early stage career within social work. So macro social work is really uh, it's really the the origins of social work. So if you look back to you know just uh, it, both formal and informal social work and just the helping of other individuals and of, and of groups of people and in communities. It was really truly rooted in social justice and, and mm-hmm. advocacy. So helping, helping individuals on both an individual level, but on a more collective level to have a holistically better life or better outcome, whatever that might be or however that might be defined. So macro social workers are not, they are not typically doing you know, one-on-one therapy or what we have come to know as, you know, psychotherapy or clinician or counseling work. Mm. You're really focused on organizational health, community health, the, what is the overall health and well-being of a system and what is anemic or what is systemic and what might need to be addressed at a root cause. Macro social workers are really thinking in terms of policy? What are the origins of policy? Uh, what what needs to be adapted and changed because it is not serving individuals or, or groups of people? What are some of the different ways that, that there can be a, I, I would really say, just a greater good, you know, a, an impact 
like more at scale. You know, there there are times when you're working with individuals, of course. I mean, like individuals make up systems, you know. But mm-hmm. the but the more system approach really is is a just a different orientation and training that macro more macro oriented social workers get. Yeah. So some of the work that you've done in your past uh, in that macro track, as as you would say, from speaking with you earlier, it, it includes working with people who've suffered from trauma at, at, at some level. Is, is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I, I don't know if I would have, even back then, when I think back of some of the work that I've done over the past, you know, at this point, you know, 20 plus years, it's like, it's crazy to say that. It's like, oh, I want to be able to say, I've only been doing this a few years, but yeah. you know, that would be disingenuous, right? But I, I can look back and I can reflect back and realize, like, that I've worked with a lot of individuals and systems that have been deeply traumatic. And, but I don't think we would have, I don't think we would have identified it as that explicitly. Yeah. Cause you know, trauma when you, when you're within it, sometimes it's, it's hard to actually pinpoint that is the the trigger. And Mm -hmm. when I was working like in, there was a space in Australia that a project that I was involved in that we discussed and some people, you know, long time listeners will, will understand. I worked with, vulnerable groups in New South Wales as part of a big project in, in the justice system and working within trauma it, it gave me a new sense of respect for what trauma was mm. like before I thought I kind of had a decent understanding of what trauma was like I'd you know I'd experienced little bits probably in my life but when you get close to the people who have suffered what can only be described as extreme trauma in terms of sexual abuse or domestic violence or or any type of violence, really, I had a newfound respect for what the word trauma meant and could mean. So I'm really keen to understand your perspective on what trauma means to a person. Mm. Well, it's very individualized, first and foremost. Mm. You know, So what may be a traumatic experience or a traumatic event for you may not result in you know, some form of either acute or just residual mm. or long-term trauma. And I think that's one of the most important things to, to distinguish. There's a, there's a, a psychotherapist, Pat Ogden, who, who often says everyone has experienced trauma, but not everyone will be traumatized. And that really helps to just understand that it's very individual. Hmm. And what what your childhood, what your family of origin, what your life experiences up until this point in your life are all contributing to how you may or may not respond to something or how it might linger. Or maybe you don't respond you know, immediately right now, but it could hmm. it could be either triggered or it could come up in a different kind of a setting or a situation like later on in life. I've heard of that kind of trauma and that mm. kind of a traumatic impact with a lot of people who are especially probably around our age. You know, like you're, mm. you're in middle age, you're in that, you're in that messy middle of, you know, potentially caring for family members who are older than you, but also younger than you. And you know, you're juggling like all, all the different things. And they're, they're different life experiences that are going to you know, maybe come up or bubble up that are, that are going to make you think about or reflect on other things that may have been either extremely suppressed or dormant for a very long time. 
Yeah, and no, I'm just I'm I'm thinking about what you've just said there around around trauma, and when I when I encountered that project, I started researching more and more, and as I got closer to the world, I, I realized that my initial target group for you know the scope was going to be children who'd suffered from sexual abuse, mm. and if there was one project in the world that I would have said I would never take on, it would have been that. Mm-hmm. But when I had got close to it, I felt like this sense of obligation where. I'm like, okay, this is something I, I need to, I need to see, I need to experience. And as I got closer to it, I, I realized that you know, there was so much stuff there that was just out of my league. I was like out of my depth, both culturally, like, you know, the sensitivity in working with indigenous and Aboriginal groups in Australia. Like I, I really ha- had to learn very quickly about how to work sensitively and inclusively. And I felt that for me to approach it effectively and use what can only be described as a, a standard design process mm. would have been hugely disrespectful because I was not skilled enough as a practitioner to approach that without the support of incredible people in the New South Wales justice system and the health system, both psychologists and social workers. And I realized at that point that it was probably my first encounter into what is now known as co-design, where I realized that I had to push myself. I was no longer the designer. I was the facilitator of those conversations between these worlds because it was bigger than me. And I realized what I could potentially do and achieve with these people was far greater and I could have much deeper impact. So I guess like I know the the work that you're talking about here and, I, and I've obviously done some research on on you yourself. Like, you know, you call out that you're committed to trauma responsive design and practice. Okay, so am I right in saying that? design generally could trivialize this as being like the uh you know like who who knew all you need to do was use design to solve some of these problems like mm. and it, it is a sense that that could be seen and that's something that i'm really i'm hyper aware of that design can sometimes be seen as the silver bullet to to the solution to these things and it, it's not it's like it's people and bringing these people together to have these shared conversations and shared perspectives and shared experiences and be respectful to the people that we're trying to to design for. Oh, there's so much that is coming to mind. I think that design as a whole, I mean, everything is designed. Everything in our world and in our awareness has been designed in some way, shape, Mm. or form. So design is a is a is a beautiful and a magnificent framework to to think about how we might address elements of trauma or at least at least give them some due and very fair and very respectful consideration mm-hmm. you know but design is not the the silver bullet and mm. if if it's done recklessly or careless in in a careless manner unethically the thing that's that really started to gel with me i'd say I'd say probably like during my time when I was at Veterans Affairs and working with a wide variety of different disciplines. There was a year when I, I spent working with the, we call them the, the leader of a department, it was called like the chief. So the chief engineer mm-hmm. at this particular VA that I was at. And I really saw this very clear cut opportunity for 
two very different people and personalities and mm -hmm. educational training to be able to work together and really complement one another. Now, a lot of other things factored into that. You know, we were roughly around the same age. We grew up within a few blocks of each other. We didn't know each other growing up, but we, we just, we had other things that, that when we mm. were, we were able to, to build this trust and this very strong rapport or rapport. And I, and I think about how that experience was so rooted in this foundation of, of respect for one another and for mm. each other's discipline that it was a very impactful experience on how I think about this work in a, in a d broader design context. Yeah. One of the things, one of the other things that comes to mind is just, you know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things, Jerry, you talked about, you know, I felt like early on, I had this, like, had this obligation to do this work, you know, almost anticipating and knowing that it, it could be, or it might be too big or too much too yeah. soon, you know, it might be overwhelming. I mean, yeah. I, I'm like you, I, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of work with children and I've, I've been intentional with that. I, I know that I, I know that I'm wired a certain way mm. and I have certain strengths, but I also, you know, there are always two sides of the coin. I, I, I'm pretty aware of some of my weaknesses as well. And, yeah. and I, I, that would be, that'd be very, very hard work to do for any, for any person. Mm. But the there's this some of this work and some of these experiences they are they are much bigger than us and how do we how do we develop these understandings with this orientation of just really practicing with I would say beyond just empathy but compassion yeah. and humility. You know the, yeah. the the compassion piece, you know empathy is, you know, constantly used in this work and it's constantly used in social work too. You know, I I remember one year I was you know, I was working at the the school social work where I got my degree. I was the assistant dean, and I reviewed all the applications. And I I remember making this this little uh, like checklist on the side, and 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 I thought, you know, I'm going to track every single time a student uses the word empathy in their application. Well, a hundred percent of the students use the word empathy in their application. Yeah. And as time went on, I thought, like, what does this word even mean? Like, I like. I just, I don't even know if I understand what it means to be, yeah. like, you know, empathic. And, you know, I'm, sometimes I'm, uh, anyway, kind of, I easily get no, off absolutely. my own tangent here. <laughs> keep, keep talking about empathy because, I mean, it, they go hand in hand with what's typically classified as like, you know, you're working with something where there's, there's quite a lot of hurt and a lot of pain mm -hmm. and like the role of the designers, especially like what's being practiced and preached about in design thinking and stuff. Is like there's a stage there called empathy in the, the traditional design thinking framework. Empathy. We're going to do the empathy work now. And everyone in the room, we're going to be empathetic. Uh, I always kind of laugh. It's just really about deep understanding is, mm -hmm. is at its core. But I mean, working with people and working with these complex problems, it's hard not to. You'd have to be very cold not to to feel some sort of emotional response mm -hmm. to these stories. Like it's they're, they're heart wrenching. And there's it's not just an incident of where child a lives life something happens and then child a continues it's it's a cycle of of mass systemic problems that that range from multiple different areas and i remember being in one of the sydney children's hospitals and um saying you know that there was a quite a low uptake for 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 services around uh, trauma support and i couldn't understand it i was li literally I was, I was dumbfounded when they said this to me i was like so 
the parents bring the child in and there's not an uptake. Uh, why? Like the child must be going through something. And they said, you need to understand this is not the worst thing that's happening in their lives. Mm. And it was that moment of realization where I'm coming from a privileged background, like I'm white, I'm male, I'm Western European, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here like, okay, so the research took, takes on another level. It's a much broader scope. I'm like, what socio impact is, has been had on the, on these people? Like, you know, I need to understand that. So it, it's just, it's layers and layers of pain. It's not, we, we can't use a cookie cutter approach. Mm-hmm. To these problems it's there's even wicked problems i feel is doing it at the service so it's it's huge it is huge and you know the the piece that you mentioned about empathy like you know like now we're going to do empathy like we're at the <laughs> we're at the empathy stage you know to me that that has always been that has always been unsettling and i you know i had some initial early on red flags where i thought like huh that's that's kind of it's strange that there's a there's a stage of empathy. You know, is, yeah. is, is empathy not part of the entire process? Like that should be considered and thought about and incorporated before you even begin. Mm. Like once you start throughout at the very end, and then how do you? And again, like thinking and like thinking about this through the this lens of social work. Like what would be that? How would I take care of that? And how would I pass that off? warmly to the next person that might need yeah. to take good care of that situation or that individual. And I started wondering, like, is empathy a practice? Is it a muscle that you can build? Are some people just intrinsically, they mm. like motivated to do it, like no matter what, you know, I'd say all of the above are very much true. But what I see as a fairly persistent, unfortunately, I, I do think this is changing, but what I see is a, a persistent way of doing empathy or being empathetic, it's very transactional and it's not relational. Mm. You know, in social work, if you are a transactional empathic social worker, you are going to get called out. You are going to make the the life or the lives of the people you are supposedly working with or helping, you're going to make it worse. And I might it might not be immediately in that moment, but mm. I remember distinctly just having some rough days early on as a social worker and some of the, you know, the clients and individuals who I, who I you know, was helping, they would bust me out on it. They would, they would point out, you know, like, you're not being very helpful. You know, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm in a bad mood. You know, I, yeah. I had a bad day and I have a baby who kept me up all night, you know, at the time yeah. I, I think about some of these, these experience and how, and how they they bring to the surface like what it what does it mean to be empathic and present and understand and actually kind of like help hold some of those stories that people are sharing with us. I know we've said the word empathy a lot so far. I I use the word compassion quite a bit because because hmm. compassion is not without empathy, but it has more of a an an action oriented you know angle to it. And so like, what if we had a, what if we had these, like these stages in, in design, but then there's just this continuum of compassion, like from pre point A to like the, the final stage of what we're doing. I, I think that would, I think that would sit differently for us as designers and for the people we're designing with or for or from. Yeah. 
compassion is something that I, I completely agree because one of my good friends, Adrian Tan, who some of the listeners might know from ProdPod, another podcast, but made made the point that I, I had a shift moving in, in when I was working in those, those worlds that I moved from an empathetic state to a sympathetic state. Mm. And I suddenly was just, I, I was wallowing in sorrow because, you know, the the system was extremely complicated and it wasn't just like, looking at it from an ecosystem map it was just layered and it was in three dimensions and it was very very complex and i got to the point where i just felt defeated mm. and um, i was like the system from having a pretty successful track record with projects up to that point i had to basically throw my hands up in the air and say okay maybe this one is just too difficult for me for me to tackle and let's try and see what i could potentially do to try and make an impact and it was it's hard but compassion from your perspective, I guess it'd be good to understand what what people can take away from this in terms of like, they might say, well, you know, I do my research and I understand the problems. I, I don't allow myself to get too too close to, to the problem and I try and remain as effective as possible and deliver something and then iterate from there. But I'm saying, in my mind, it's very difficult to sometimes get out of that state because mm. these problems aren't transactional, as you would say from designing a wireframe and like people can't use the wireframe because you know x y and z these are service design projects and these are policy-based projects that really at its core require systemic organizational and societal change like a radical rethink of how we hold those mental models of what government could and should be mm-hmm. and those failings are really hard for a designer to to come to that conclusion but it was for me anyway i i really struggled with the fact that my beloved design framework that i held in total regard i was like we we, we can actually go through this if if we just move to the next stage we, we might be able to get to get to some reality and we might be able to i'm like okay there's a lot more work to be done than this it's it was bigger than me and um i guess i'm keen to hear your perspective on that well it's these these systems and these these design projects and processes that we are tackling within these much larger systems are incredibly complex and yeah. you could spend your entire life trying to understand them and i think it's if there if there is an ability or an opportunity to to have not comp- not just compassion for others, but compassion for yourself as well. In knowing that you can't understand all of it, you can't understand all of the all of the the good and the bad and everything in between within some mm. of these very large systems. You know, however, can you do your due diligence to understand as much as possible so that it will be helpful for your overall work? You know, there's there's a there's something to be said about understanding the context with when within where you are working. And that is going to give you an enormous on-ramp to understanding some of the pitfalls, but also some of the shortcomings of what you are actually able to do. You know, like I, I do think that there are sometimes there, I've talked with a lot of, a lot of designers from at this point, really around the world. So either designers, design educators, mm-hmm. social workers who want to get into design, designers who are just fascinated by what social workers like could and do do. And I, there, there's this, something that often comes up is 
I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z, but I just want to be able to do it. You know, I want to do it and I want to do it quickly. And this Mm. urgency to just rapidly solve other people's problems, I think is part of the problem. You know, Mm. it's it's, some of these things need time to marinate. They need time to, to build that actual understanding to include the very people that we are designing for or with or sometimes from. And the the thing that I I hear sometimes, but but not often enough, is this incorporation of like of reflection throughout this process. You know, mm. like what is it? You know, like why am I doing this work? You know, like I almost want to turn the tables on you, Jerry, and ask like why did why did you feel that sense of obligation like all those years ago when you were working on some of these mm. like vulnerable you know projects. Like, where did that, where did that sense of obligation come from? Was it because of, you know, your, your earned and unearned privilege? Was it, you know, this is an issue area that, that you don't necessarily understand? Like, there, there's a whole host of questions Mm. that I could ask you and, and, you know, encourage you to, to think on those several, like, examples of why. And I, I think if, when, when I've asked, you know, especially like younger designers, when I've asked them some of those things, like, I realize that they haven't asked themselves that and they've never yeah. been really asked that. They they haven't even just paused to reflect on like, why do you want to contribute to this particular project or this particular program or this particular process? You know, there's, there's a, there are a lot of reasons why we might be motivated to do some of the design work that we do do. Yeah. It's well, per- personal experience. Do you think that's something that makes working in this space more effective? Do you think if someone has experienced some level of trauma at whatever level that might be, do you think that prepares them better for working in this space? I would say it sounds like I'm hesitating on my response because mm. my immediate my immediate reaction was, you know, yes, absolutely. However, I have a small caveat with that. I think that there is something to be said and there is an immense value in understanding your own origin stories of your own trauma. I, mm. I do, I do think, especially now that we have, we have all around the world, like lived through and continue to live through a pandemic. I, I think the, the statistics in the U S pre pandemic were something along the lines of 75% of adults in the United States have experienced at least one traumatic event in their life. Mm. I would wager a bet that that statistic is now currently 100%. And what does that look like Mm. for you? What does that look like Mm. for you? You know, what does that look like for me? How are you acknowledging it? How are you potentially addressing it if it is overwhelming? And then how are you recovering and integrating that into into your life and then into your work? I think those latter parts are really, really scary for a lot of people. It's easy to default to, I'm just going to keep busy. I'm going to stay productive. All of the elements of, of white supremacy culture, to be quite honest, you know, it's um, like, like, like I, like, why would I deal with my own stuff? I don't have any stuff like that's them. And, you know, I think about something that Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk said in a training I did with him back in the fall. And he was, he was talking, it was all around, you know, the body keeps the score and trauma and preparing, you know, a ton of clinicians to have this, to have this deeper understanding of, of trauma and how it, how it affects us 
both psychologically, but also like physiologically. And he, he shared this, this very detailed and, and intimate story of, uh, of a client situation. And this is all over Zoom. So if you, you could hear a pen drop, like you could have, you could have heard a pen drop when he was talking about this. And then he, and then he starts saying something along the lines of, as clinicians and as people who are, who are licensed professionals, we have got to get over this thinking that it is us as the helper and them as the person who needs help. He said, mm. we, he said, we are them. Like we are them. And yeah. it just like that, that had a massive cognitive shift in my head. It's like, oh my goodness, like that. We, we don't think of it that way. You know, we think of yeah. it as, again, like these, these elements of transaction, power over, like we are here to help, mm. we are here to save. I mean, this is, this is, this is a problematic in design, but also very problematic in social work as well. Yeah. It's funny because that whole kind of white perspective on things and it's us and that they've got the problem. At the end of that, I came to the realization that if people, the people who receive the trauma and like have the effects of these trauma, we are part of the problem, and like we we create these problems within society ourselves. Mm-hmm. And as a result, as a result, we have a responsibility to to look at it squarely in the eye and see what role you have to play in in that problem. It, it may seem pretty pretty simple in terms of being able to dilute it down to that, but um, in terms of what I do on a day to day basis. And how how I look at the world shifted after that project, and some of the, some projects mm. that you take on in your life and in your career will define you. Mm. That's what I've learned, and the project that I'm speaking about there completely defined me. It's the reason why a podcast. It's the reason why this is ACD is in existence. But when I look at homelessness and I look at drug addiction and you know things that I, I ultimately would have shied away from uh, in my younger self. I now, like when I'm out, I do whatever I can. I'll speak to those people, like, and I'll say, hey, you know, if I can, I'll, and this is not me trying to say, by the way, that I'm, I'm a great person or any, anything of the sort, but I'll acknowledge their existence and I'll acknowledge their presence. And I'll introduce, you know, my, my children to these things. They'll say, why is that person sleeping mm-hmm. in a sleeping bag? And, and I'm like, well, they are not lucky enough. Things have happened to them. I try and explain these things mm-hmm. to to my children to explain that it's not something that we just shy away from, and we don't shine the light on it. I think it's really important that you know, in terms of schools and in terms of educational um, practices, that we we include these problems in our projects because if we are all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution, you know, when we're working on any projects, albeit in banking. Or if we're in, like you know, real estate or whatever it is, they will have 100% an impact on society. Okay, there there will be another thing in the broader zoomed out perspective of the world that's going to have an impact, and it's very rarely thought like that. Mm-hmm. It's being very much focused on we'll achieve this to get our own personal and greater business good, but it won't be considered in the socio impact on on the project it's going to have on life. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair to say like that this is where the shortcomings in design comes? It's it's a very narrow focus and the framing is very narrowly defined within projects in terms of we get our outcome, we're happy. Whereas they don't really seem to consider that whole total zoomed out perspective of, well, what are we designing out of the, the broader life ecosystem? Mm-hmm. I mean, like looking at things like intersectionality, root cause analysis. I mean, if you if you really 
I mean, just looking at an issue like homelessness, you know, housing and homelessness. If we if we really looked at the the root cause, we would we would be going far beyond the the individual who is currently at risk of homelessness or mm. you know is housing insecure. You know, we we would look far beyond that. We would look yeah. at where like where is the where is the policy where is the 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 profit driven like aspect of this that is contributing to this problem we would look at it we would really we would look at the power asymmetry that is that is truly significantly imbalanced and is contributing to to this plight you mentioned something about that particular work and and it had a lasting lifelong impact on you hmm. And I think there's, I think there's something to be said about that and, and thinking and reflecting on that and, and considering like what, what is that for, for us as designers? You know, for me, I can, you know, I've been a social worker at this point for 11 years, but I've been working, you know, for, you know, professionally, whatever that means, professionally, you know, my air quotes for you know, 20 plus years. Mm. And I'd say the, the most, the most significant work that has impacted how I think about this, which is something that I don't really talk about all that often, was was capital punishment work in Chicago mm. back in the early 2000s. That work had a profound impact on my psyche, my way of thinking in terms of systems, helping individuals, helping family systems that are impacted by maybe like one individual. And that that has that has really shaped and molded you know and led to like why I became a social worker why I like to think about design beyond just the like the project scope that we have at hand for this you know tangible doable thing like like i get i get the aspect of why we you know we need to have a narrow scope to 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 maybe like do something but but can we build in a broader understanding of what that context is, you know, mm. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, thinking, thinking about and bringing it back to some of these elements of trauma. I, I think about this, I think about this line that Resma Menicum, you know, he's a, he's a social worker here in the U S and, and, uh, you know, a, a well-known trauma specialist. And, you know, the first time he said that, like trauma decontextualized can look like personality and like trauma in a person, you know, when it's decontextualized can look like personality. I thought, Oh my God, you know, how, how much of my own stuff has been, you know, maybe distorted or influenced or put through this lens of like what my personality might be, you know, whether it's being like cynical or being funny or being, you know, like you know, maybe more optimistic on this particular day. I mean, those context really, really matters. But I don't think that is explicitly built into some of the projects that we work on. I don't think it is given the due diligence or the value within a lot of organizations. I think that there are individuals, this is something that I've been seeing anecdotally. Mm. I think there are a lot of individuals and teams of people that who have reached out to me who have said, you know, I feel like we're working on fill in the blank project and we don't know what we're doing and we are not prepared to hear some of the things that we are being told. And I feel like we need to get some kind of 
training or like build up some kind of a competency in terms of being trauma informed. Can you help us? And I think, Hmm. you know, like, what does the leadership look like at your organization? Who's the design director, the design lead? Like, are, are they, are they aware of this? Are you, are they aware that you're having some of these like thoughts and reactions? You know, some people have, you know, I, there, there have been some who have, who have explicitly shared with me that if they bring up that they are impacted by the work that they are doing, which is commonly known as vicarious or secondary trauma, Mm. that if they bring that up in an organizational setting, that they are, they don't use this language. This is how I, how I, how I've been interpreting some of this. They're seen as, well, well, why did you ask the questions that you asked? Mm. What did you do that elicited that kind of a response from someone? I mean, that's, that's shaming behavior. That, that is, yeah. the, that is a shameful response to, to people who are having a true a human reaction to, to these problems, to really challenging problems. Mm. It's funny because for listeners will know that I, I experienced very extreme vicarious trauma from that project and it, it took me a long time and it still kind of lingers within me, you know, that vicarious trauma. And it's, it's something that I had to seek professional help for, for, quite a while Mm -hmm. but I felt at that time the working in the space I I knew when I was within it I was like I'll just get through this because Mm. I need I was that superhero syndrome where um like you know I can do this like you know like you know I I need to be able to to get through this and but just dealing with that sort of let me come to the conclusion of the weaknesses that we all possess and I wasn't prepared both mentally physically prepared for working in that space you know Mm. so as researchers how do we better train and prepare people for this is it is it a case that if you're i mentioned that you're licensed okay so presumably that means that you've studied some skills mechanism around self-support and support identification and others and is that is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's 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 fair to say. It's fair to say. So, but like <laughs> as design designers and service designers, sometimes we find ourselves in these places that you don't find in the books. You know, about go out mm-hmm. to find user research or whatever you want to call it, design research. They don't prepare you for some of the conversations that you're going to have. You know, around rape or child rape or these things, and you're you're sometimes stunned. Well, I was definitely stunned in in several conversations where it's still kind of like even saying those words just there like you know has a triggering effect for me Mm. and I wasn't prepared I just was not prepared and I think it's one of the things that we need to become better at as designers to prepare designers and design researchers for these real conversations because we shy away from them we can't tackle them Mm. so how, how do we do that how do we prepare the next generation of designers as they're leaving universities or learning where on the jobs, whatever it is, the next wave, how do we prepare them better to become more, as you would say, licensed, you know, self-aware? Mm-hmm. Or, or just trauma-informed and trauma-informed, trauma-responsive. Yeah. You know, I, there are a lot of different ways to, to maybe answer that question. You know, one mm. is, one is the assumption that, you know, if you've received a formal education in design and then you have this linear path into like into doing design work, you know, whatever that aspect of that specific aspect of mm-hmm. that might be, 
you know, one way to address this is in the design curriculum, like in mm. education. So whether it's these, you know, certificate programs that are trying to churn out, you know, like trained designers in these like eight week, you know, like rapid sprints, which I think that there is good opportunities with some of that. But I think that there are also massive shortcomings if we avoid some of these like mm -hmm. more difficult things. But I think in design education is one where this is this is starting to shift, you know, at a at a higher education level, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. It needs to happen across the board and across the globe, though. So that's one. I think another is that is is really looking at this distinction between, you know, me as a social worker who has a clinical licensure, who is also working in this space of design. You know, that's that's fairly unique. There 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 are other social workers who are working in this context of design, mm. which I think is which is I think that's amazing. Mm. But, you know, I'm as a as a social worker, I am held to a different standard. You know, mm. I have my profession has a code of ethics that I have to abide by. Yeah, I had to study for a very expensive test and I had to pass that test in order to be able to call myself a licensed clinical social worker. As part of that requirement of licensure, I have to get a certain number of continuing education hours every two years, and I have to renew that and pay a fee to maintain my licensure. So there's okay. something there's something that is that's that's built into this this professionalism of mm. uh, of of social work that is that's been around for decades at this point. Yeah, there's not an equivalent for that for design. You no, know, so if you have a and I'm not necessarily calling calling out calling that out. I, mean, I guess I am kind of calling that out. Mm. I'm not I'm not calling for a you know there should be a licensure for design. Yeah. There should be a code of ethics for design. But I guess I would maybe a different way of thinking about this is why isn't there a code of ethics for yeah. design? Why don't you have some expectation that you have to do some type of competency-based, yeah. culturally aware training on a, some kind of re recurring cycle. Yeah. Because the only, the only designers who are, who are thinking about these things critically and are, you know, you know, to be quite honest, kind of troubled by this, this lack of that structure mm. are the ones who are seeking it out on their own. So they are intrinsically motivated. They're mm. feeling some kind of like either moral injury or call to action to actually yeah. like address this either yeah. for themselves internally or for their team or their project that they might be working on or mm. organization that they might be working within. I, I, so I would encourage those who, who are feeling that either call to action or that compass inside is guiding them to like, you know, I need to learn more. I need to understand this better. Like keep following that feeling mm. that you're having because you there is education out there there are different things that you can do and that you can take advantage of now yeah. a training for me as a social worker might look very different than training for a designer and that's that's yeah. one of the things that i've really been as i've been partnering with different different people and talking about trauma-informed design i'm really trying to make sure that there is not this like I'm a social worker and these are things that you could and should be doing, although you are not a licensed professional like design practitioner. You know, I think that there's there's a way to at least build some foundational understanding of what it means to be trauma informed. Like th there are some principles that are, you know, there are six explicit trauma informed care principles in the US, but you know, other parts of the world have sometimes they have four, sometimes they have five, sometimes it's seven. 
and and those can be very i think fairly easily adapted in a design context like there there are there's a handful of us who have been talking about this and have really been trying to to pick this apart and really think okay like if we apply this outside of a social service agency or a healthcare setting where these trauma informed principles were originally designed mm-hmm. and kind of created for like how like how would this apply in the context of a design project or in the context of interviewing someone or in participatory design or in co-design like it's it it's I'm biased when I say this so I'm almost hesitant to say it but I'll say it I think it's easily transferable now I it is a mindset shift and it mm. is a practice that is something that I am am constantly championing you know so even though I've been working within a lot of the social justice space for you know two plus decades at this point. Yeah. I've been a social worker for over a decade. I am still learning too. So I have all the education. I have all the earned and unearned privilege. I have all of the training and all of the, the practice and the experience. And I am still learning too. You know, so I think mm. that I think that's important to acknowledge because I, I do know some things. I do have a like a grounded confidence in how I approach this, but there's still a lot to, to yeah. learn. And then I'm open to evolving as I, as I incorporate mm. this in my practice as well. It's really interesting. You, you've called that out because working with people across government, especially in Australia, they all had one thing in common and it was humility. And it was the sense that they can work, work with each other and, you know, they knew what they knew, but they, they were also open about the fact of what they didn't know. And it's one of the most important mindsets, I guess, for designers to work in these complex spaces mm-hmm. to to retain that humility and say, well, actually, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot I don't know about this. What can we do as as a unit, as a team, or as I used to call them, super teams, because they were, you know, greater than <laughs> than me. But I think like, you know, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to designers out there who might find themselves working in spaces that we, we might, and I'm doing air quotes here, find traumatic, how should they approach that both in terms of conversations with their design leaders and also approach it in terms of uh, method, in, in terms of inclusion of, say, social workers or psychologists or whoever that might be. So what advice would you give to them? I would definitely encourage them to, I I would encourage them to include social workers in that process, whether Mm. it's ideally if it could be done throughout the entire phase of that process, which I think that there are some, there is some growing interest in some, you know, demonstration projects where that is being explored and, and people are wanting to do that. I think if there is, if there is any one piece of advice, it's to, really try to detangle those psychological and physiological reactions that you're having to this work. And so the first step really is acknowledging that something is off uh, or Mm. something is, you might be out of your league. Uh, You might need to bring in some other people. I'm hesitant to suggest that there is a checklist, you know, because I think that gets us in this trapping of, of uh, tra- more transactional versus relational. Mm-hmm. However, I do think that there are some specific methods that can be incorporated in, in, mm-hmm. in what it might mean to be trauma-informed or trauma-responsive when you're doing design. I, I really think that 
if you suspect that you're out of your league, you are a hundred percent out of your league when yeah. when you're <laughs> when you're doing some of this work. I ha- I've had those feelings myself, you know, even as a social worker. I I remember early on, and you know, again at Veterans Affairs, helping someone. You know, I've got I've you know I have this training, and I'm and I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed, and I'm I'm ready to help and solve all these different problems that are coming my way. But sometimes someone would come in and they are so overwhelmed with their own tension and anger and frustration of the system that I could not, with all my skill sets and all my training and all my experience, I could not deescalate them effectively in that moment. Mm. I had to bring in an additional person to help me like run interference with that. I think, I think just knowing that sometimes you have to call in others to assist. That's uh I mean, would we call that failure in design? I, I would actually call that, you know, a massive strength. <laughs> mm. One of the things that I called out afterwards was working within a team that had this kind of self check in where it was it was mandatory to talk about these things amongst the group. And even though like I was part of a team that was was really, really brilliant, they had identified some things, I guess, but it was only only due to my own kind of doings of, of seeking uh, external help with a psychologist that I was able to deal with it. Like I didn't want to show weakness and that was, it was more of a cultural thing and it was probably mm. uh, a personal thing as well, where I just didn't want to show that, you know, the, the work was piling up. But I mean, from a, from a, a method perspective, I totally agree with not making this a checklist activity and saying, okay, well you could do these three things and then it'll be all right. It's not, it's, it's really the, these topics and these things that we find ourselves sometimes researching and designing for and designing with, they need greater emphasis on the, and we need to be able to give it as much respect as possible. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think it's possible from, from a design perspective just to approach it unilaterally. I think it has to be an inclusive process. Mm-hmm. So any, any of the work that needs to be done needs to be done in the team, not just design leading the way, but also like having social workers, psychologists, like we're actually part of the team that's going to try and understand this together. I think that would make much more, make make better sense from, from a design perspective in my world anyway, and my perspective. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I would, I mean, I would say the same. And I, you know, something that I started wondering just even a few weeks ago was, well, you know, if there, if there isn't a code of ethics for design as a whole, design as a discipline and as a profession, what if we started thinking about, again, let's start with self, you know, mm. what, what would be your personal code of ethics? You know, and you don't necessarily need to share that with anyone, but you know, yeah. but if you were to outline what you are willing and able to do and what you are unwilling and unable to do, that's going to give you some significant insight on where your strengths might be and where your weaknesses might be and where there is potential to do more harm or to re-traumatize someone than to, than to not. And we start literally with the micro, which is understanding mm. your sense of self, your motivation to do this work and really doing almost like a, you know, an analysis of like, what are you, what are you able and capable of doing? Now, this might not apply to every single design scenario. I, I would, I would wager a bet that everything is, is deeply interconnected though, and that any of these practices of being trauma informed or any of these methods that might be 
you know, done as a team, like, you know, actually like acknowledging that there might be vicarious trauma that individuals Mm -hmm. on our team may be experiencing. Is there enough trust within that team to even be able to bring that up? If there isn't, then you might be hearing about it 10, 20 years later when you have an interaction or a run-in with that person and they share, hey, when I was working on such and such project, I was, you know, I was, I was so young and I didn't understand what was really happening. But when someone shared like fill in the blank traumatic thing, it really had an impact on me. And it's, and it's kind of lingered for a really long time. Mm. I have heard dozens of stories like that from, from people from all over the world. Now, if I, if those are things that people are willingly sharing with me, someone who like ostensibly that they do not know, then that I, I would, I would, think that that is probably happening on a much more wider, unknown systemic level. Absolutely. Rachel, we're, we're coming towards the end of the episode. And I first of all, in case I forget, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time this morning. I know you got up extra early to speak with me. So in case I forget to do it on the podcast, I want to thank you for your time. It was oh, truly appreciated. But if people want to reach out to you and learn more about what you do, What's the best way for people to connect with you? And that's so I can put those links into the show notes. Yeah. So I think probably the two, probably the two best ways, LinkedIn is definitely a good way. I I have, I have probably connected with nearly a thousand people just through Mm. LinkedIn. I used to really underestimate the power of LinkedIn. Yeah. I feel like I'm like a spokesperson for them. And I'm totally, I'm totally not. So yeah. finding me on LinkedIn is definitely, uh, is definitely one way, but also through my, through my site and through my work, social workers who design is definitely a, another okay. good way. Fantastic. I'll put those links into the show notes, but Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Jerry, this has been awesome. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is Hate City newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.